Hey everyone, it's Chad. Welcome back to Mission Daily. We have a giveaway for everyone that enters. You can win a prize at mission.org slash books. Steph, what can people win? Books that you love. Do you want to read like a CEO? Chad has a bookshelf that probably has, I was actually calculating in my head how much you've probably spent on books because there's so many in our studio. I'd say there's probably 500 here. So a fraction. You, this is, you don't even know about the hidden libraries oh, I have stored oh in my parents' garage. Oh, I forgot about that. Well, anyways, it's called Read Like a CEO because we are taking books off of Chad's bookshelf and we are putting it in a giveaway. Books are the best investment in yourself. And the reason why we wanted to do this giveaway, I recently started paying myself a salary. Yay, woo! And which is a major milestone. And I wanted to immediately give back to everyone out there that's listening that has helped us get where we're at. And it's really exciting. So this is my way of saying thank you to the listeners. So at mission.org slash books, uh, I picked out a number of books from my bookshelf and the top 30 people who enter. And you can see how to get more entries, all that stuff at mission.org slash books. Uh, but the top 30 people who enter get to pick one book from this list and I'll mail you a physical copy. I'll buy it. The next 15 get three books. So if you're in the top 15, you get three books from the list, your picks. And if you're in the top five, you get five books each. So this is pretty cool. And you can get more entries for every single email uh, subscriber you refer. Yep. And stay tuned for the next little ad segment because we will tell you why Chad picked some of these books to get you excited. And mission.org slash books, go there, enter. And everyone who enters is going to get a copy of 100 Business Ideas. That's an ebook we created with 100 ideas to start making more money and yeah, maybe even start a business uh, this weekend. Yep. So enter the giveaway and good luck. May the odds be ever in your favor. (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) I'm Jeffrey Wright, and you're listening to Mission Daily. Selected as best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hello, and welcome to Mission Daily. This is producer Rachel Kanya. In this episode, Chad speaks with Anna Gatt, who is co-founder of Actual, an AI-mediated chat app for meaningful conversations. In this wide-ranging discussion, Chad and Anna discuss how to become a better communicator and the future of what communication looks like. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Mission Daily. Today's guest is Anna Gat. Anna, how did I do on that pronunciation? That's perfect. You sound almost <laughs> perfectly Hungarian, more Hungarian than a Hungarian person would, which is the goal here. I love it. So speaking of that, tell us a little bit about your background and where you're from, because in the U.S., we have this uh, bubble that's going on in Silicon Valley and the media where sometimes we don't get to hear stories from people that are overseas, that are building, that are building awesome companies. So I was so excited today to bring you on. And I just want to hear a little bit about who are you and where are you from? Well, thanks so much for having me. Actually, this is my first ever podcast that I participate in as a guest. So I'm really excited and I really love um, the mission and the mission's mission to go a bit more meta on that. Um, So I'm originally Hungarian. I'm from Budapest, from the Pest side, which is very important for very complicated identity reasons. Um, And I I moved to the UK. So I live in London now. I've moved here. um, I moved here five and a half years ago. Um, So I've been more or less um, I've I've kind of familiarized myself with, um, with this wonderful city um, by now. 
my background is I kind of gained my background in parallel in um, technology and theater and film. I come from a, a family of TV people. So I grew up among people creating television series, fiction, in kind of starting my life in the last years of, of communism. So I always say that um, my earliest experiences are the ones that really formed uh, what became my career or formed my, my affinities in that sense. It, it was a very, very interesting time and, and a very interesting time, both from an angle of looking at how startups work and how you build businesses. So I really like to, like to talk about that. I think as far as I can remember back, I've always been interested in dialogue. And I've always been interested in dialogue language and how that relates to how people express truth or intention and when are the moments when those two things are not fully overlapping. I remember, I think, three distinct experiences that really shaped this interest for me. Uh, one was just generally the, the era, so the late 80s in, in late communism Eastern Europe. This is just the years before the fall of the, uh, the Berlin Wall. Um, still nobody really has passports. Still there is this really weird sense of tension and, and distrust among people generally. And I, I like to talk about this because this is something that I think is always a danger to be revived, which was mm -hmm. this really widespread linguistic distrust between people. Let me let me unpack that because that I love how you characterize that, which you're basically characterizing communism and authoritarianism as uh, mistrust between people, especially as it relates to language. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah. So one of the interesting things about how power or any power structure becomes fully established is by changing people's perception of reality a little bit, right? Um, and how do you do that? Well, you have to tweak the language. We are linguistic animals, homo locans. We, we are able to think about things for which we have words in a more kind of analytical way, although obviously we have visual reasoning and a lot of other things going on there. So by taking away certain parts of the language or changing the meaning of certain words, you can really mess with how people relate to reality. There is some fantastic literature on this from Václav Havel to some contemporary analysts of how emptying words of their current meaning and filling it with something that doesn't ring fully true to people can actually make that entire category very problematic for people. You can only really... The reason why babies cry is because they can't really verbally reason with you and tell you what's wrong. They know something is wrong, but it doesn't really fall into specific categories yet. If you have words for things, you are able to pinpoint things that you want to change about your environment. And from a certain aspect, our entire lives as humans is about changing aspects of our environment constantly as we go along in our any, or on any day. Uh, so what was really interesting to me, and, and this is really something that became clear to me as I, you know, I studied linguistics and I studied philosophy, I studied drama, I gained three master's degrees through my uh, academic career um, in three different things, always trying to kind of enter this question that I grasped instinctively at a very young age. And one of the, one of the key experiences to me, and I think this is 
maybe a good example to explain to people who might never have experienced growing up in an authoritarian regime was one of my key experiences as a child was this weird situation where adults are afraid of children. Hmm. And I will unpack this a little bit. So in a society where the where people's relationship to reality is very clean or at least shared between groups of uh, um, of the population, you kind of know what your child shouldn't be saying when they go to a costume party at at, at their kindergarten. But where the rules are not clear, where the code doesn't have a key and anything can mean anything and anybody can get in trouble for anything, you can't really tell your kid what not to say, right? So you can't tell your kid don't say the F word because anything they might happen to be saying at the kindergarten costume party may, you know, lead to mummy losing her job. So there was this really interesting and to my mind, extremely unnatural distrust between adults and children, where children were considered a liability for the existence and careers of adults. And that really interested me. Especially when I, when in 1989, this regime ended and I, I stopped seeing this. So the contrast became very clear to me and I wanted to explore more. Why is this? Why is this happening? How does power work through language? And how can we always kind of aim at pushing for more truth and, and cleaner language? That was very important to me. I think a lot of, there's still a lot of distrust in the community that I'm from because of something that happened or ended 30 years ago. It's a very long-lasting stressor. The other experience, and it was still simultaneous um, at this time, was, was definitely fiction. And not just because I was this bookworm who kind of climbed the bookcase at the age of five and literally stayed there, and I'm still there, um, but because my parents were creating fiction, right? So my experience of my childhood was that, you know, every week, multiple times, we have a large group of people in our living room uh, from all sorts of departments of production. And then they throw ideas around and everybody brings their expertise from different fields. And then eventually something awesome comes out of that and goes on the air and everybody loves it. And then we make a lot of money, which is, I think, quite a good formative experience for getting things done, right? Um, Definitely. But it had that added element to that, which was that it's fiction, right? That my parents create fiction and people, well, I knew that people don't believe it, but at the same time, there were other things that I saw as fictitious in society, particularly going back to this whole language confusion, anything can mean anything thing that characterized um, the late communist regime. Um, because but also, really quick, let me let me just add in here. It's when we hear fiction and nonfiction, it's easy to think these are like absolutes. But the reality of life is there are many things that are gray areas. There's so much nuance. And it's just like when you talk about politics, trying to say left or right, it kind of it takes a lot of the nuance away. And it, you know, it pushes people into camps, whereas what's your definition of fiction and my definition of nonfiction could be very different things. So I, I love how you're starting to like yeah, present these uh, two dichotomies there, but go ahead. I think that's a very important point. And I also think, I like to say that what really divides political camps from each other is not necessarily that they disagree on specific policy points or that they, even that they, they, they may dispute the meaning of some things. It's more the difference between the palettes of concern. So if you talk to 
a person on the left, their list of concerns, their, their list of priorities, their list of keywords would be very different from that of a person on the right. So I always feel that what, one of the primary reasons there is no, um, or, or dialogue is so problematic between the two camps is because first you have to align the priorities. First, you have to find shared points that, are, that matter for both camps. And that's often very different. Obviously, this has a lot of, you know, um, reasons kind of stemming from how advertising is done. You want to say something new. You want to bring up new issues. So kind of in, a, in, a, in an emergent way, the camps end up talking about different stuff because they try to just shine out and gain attention or, or gather attention. Yeah, so, but fiction to the level of, just to give you an example. So my mom was in the 80s she was the star of a tv series and there was there was only one tv channel in the country so if you were on saturday nights all through the 80s basically everybody all the 10 million people knew you big fame in a small country is a very specific thing and a lot of downsides a lot of really a lot of extremes there and one of my memories from my childhood is that I'm with my mom and whenever we would go out people would always come up and there was no invisibility whatsoever when we were out but people kept calling her by her name in the tv series so even though it was a grown-up that you know was supposed to be smarter than me uh, obviously this person knew that that's not her name it was so enjoyable to be in that constructed reality of the tv series they really, they they didn't really care it. about yeah nobody cares about actual celebrities we care about their characters right whether that's a character played on instagram or it's a character played on television or netflix or or in a movie so to me that was a really interesting thing and it really got me thinking i was like oh okay so there there are these really strange layers here in language and i want to explore them all and I think the third experience that maybe is a bit more negative, but I think I really, I think it was a really good source of motivation for me. That was actually more relating to fame. I think people under underappreciate how paranoid famous people are. And I know that because I grew up as the child and grandchild of multiple very famous people. If you're famous, everybody wants something from you. Brett Easton Ellis said that I think in Luna Park that there was a sentence that really I felt really close to my heart. Um, he, he writes that being famous means you're always disappointing everybody. Like people come to you with these inflated hopes that they, you know, grew and cherished and nurtured uh, completely independently and unbeknown to you. And then at some point your paths cross and they will just pour it on you. And there's no way, there's no way to live up to those expectations. Or I think that people who actually manage to give the impression or find a way to pay that back to people, I think they are the ones who remain on top for, for a very, very long time. It's, it's an amazing skill to have. So, so one of the first things that I learned from my parents was really that always, you know, people have hidden agendas, always look beyond, beyond what they're saying. And I think this is not a natural skill. For me, I don't, I'm not by nature a distrustful person, but in theory, <laughs> on the kind of academic level, this really interests me. I still get deceived a lot. I don't think it actually makes me more astute um, about people's hidden agendas, but I know a lot of theory about it and I have conducted a lot of research. So I think these, this very interesting- But I think that's a good uh, thing. Let me, let me just add this here. I, I think that's a really good thing to occasionally be deceived or be open enough so that you have your hopes crushed from time to time with like different 
people, different partnerships and things like that, because otherwise there's really no way to easily measure, are you good at giving trust to others? And I think giving trust to others is something that's very empowering, but in order to get good at it, I think you have to have enough data points of being deceived, of being let down. So I think that collecting those data points is actually a really positive thing. It's very painful, but it's a lot like a negative carry trade in finance when you're betting on something to go you know, to short in the, in the long run. It costs you money to hold on to this position, but eventually over time, if you, as long as you don't have like a, a game ending or business ending type mistake, eventually you're, you're going to hit something that's like huge, uh, a huge partnership, uh, an incredible relationship. So basically like giving yourself exposure to be deceived, I think can be very powerful. So um, yeah, I just wanted to jump in there and like say that might be a sign that you're on like an awesome track, but at least that's how I, those, those are the mental gymnastics I use to make myself feel better about getting deceived. Oh, okay. so. <laughs> very generous. Interpretation. Um, yeah. I think there are, there are a lot of aspects to why being deceived from time to time is actually a really good idea. One may be to, um, first of all, no pain, no gain. Nobody is born with perfect virtues, or if you are, I don't want to hear about it because I would be jealous. Um, we kind of <laughs> learn not to be, you know, jerks to each other through having experienced pain. And having been in those shoes, um, I think we become more empathetic and and patient with each other because because of those things. I also think that so we talk about trust as if it was a separate thing that you have to kind of grow in yourself and then just throw around in the world and hope for the best. I, I'm not sure that's true. I think hope may be a more separate drive although i in my view hope is always tied to work so i always mm. i'm i have the eldest child syndrome so i always feel that i have to work for things and you know <laughs> get my reward for my efforts so i always think that you know if i if i'm doing the best i can that i can hope for the best and but trust to me is so intrinsically tied to leverage and i think one of the the, the good thing that comes out of just getting slapped in the face a couple of times is that you learn that you need to have leverage. The people that you're, you describe as people with deep trust toward each other is because they have leverage. The leverage mm. may be that I don't want anything and I have nothing to lose, right? So you can go in the Buddhist or Schopenhauer-esque direction and say, I don't want anything from you so I can trust you because you can't, cannot take anything away from me which is very interesting when it comes to honesty and being truthful to each other. Um, I have, I know this sounds very nerdy, but I have a favorite Greek uh, proverb, which is that an uh, ancient Greek proverb, which is that not even a thousand strong men can undress a naked woman. And to me that obviously this is about honesty, or you can also call it the eight mile method where Eminem goes on stage and he says everything but about himself first. So you basically have Definitely. no self attack. It's perfect. I'll comment on that latter one since I don't think I'm allowed to comment on the the former one. I don't think that's safe to do anymore <laughs> without getting doxxed. It's figurative. Um, yeah, yep. I, I definitely I, I've I've built my entire career, you know, inspired by Eminem and his uh, his method. So no, that's a joke. But I think that moment in Eight Mile is definitely something that most startup founders think about before they go to pitch because basically you have to options either you start lying people's face off and present your company as something much more advanced and or you can say guys i'm super smart i'm going to solve this problem 
here are all the things that we're going to maybe mess up. So let's, you know, collaborate so that doesn't happen. Or these are the things that I want to create. And these are the reasons why I will be able to do it. For, for me, coming from the show business or having seen show business from very close, close up, I think it's that really... So I, I'm very determined to lead my life, not in a show business way. And I do a lot of things to avoid the stuff that I saw was just inefficient in show business and maybe even harmful to human relationships and people's sense of self or people's, you know, conscience, right? In show business, you have a lot of people with very deeply injured conscience is, I don't know if you can put that right into a plural. Um, so they have, there are a lot of problems and, and it's one of my great um, sources of motivation to, you know, to find a different type of, a different way of living. We have to because, yeah, I completely agree. The show business industry, as we start to, as a company, get more into entertainment and explore working with celebrities and people like that, it's very exciting, but it's also kind of depressing because, you know, as we start to learn more about the industry and see the actual problems and hear those problems from people, yeah, it's just, it gets really depressing because you hear all these stories about people who are just like damaged, they're in pain. And they're looking for answers in like all the wrong places. And that simple narrative keeps, I think, playing out again and again in, in Hollywood and in show business, sometimes with social media. So what are some examples of problems you see or you've experienced in the industry that you feel like we have to solve? In technology or in, in show business? In technology, in show business. I think that they're they're pretty similar. Risking that I might seem overly personally motivated uh, when I say this. I definitely tend to agree with the pipeline problem in tech. Incidentally, this also happens to be one of my key problems. I mean, I when I moved to London, I left behind my entire life. I was 30 years old. I sold all of my clothes. I rented out my apartment, put down my car keys, kicked out my boyfriend, packed my entire life into a couple of suitcases and left and started from zero in London, really zero. So I didn't know anybody. I came from a very shattered environment with a famous last name that all through my life, all of the doors were open for me. And I felt I will never know if I'm good if I remain in this bubble. I felt like I was living in my nursery room where I know every you know, nook and cranny and everybody basically, but this is not, I don't want to you know, reproduce this experience into a family because it would be so circular, it would drive an adventurous soul like myself crazy. So I really started from zero and, you know, I did odd jobs that I had never had to do before. I did um, manual work, I did, um, I worked in customer service, I was flyering, I was distributing cosmetic samples, I was babysitting, doing a lot of really odd, odd jobs. And sometimes it led to really extreme kind of, 1930s Disney TV show. No, there were there was no TV. Um, um film film um stories like okay, just to give you an example, I'm I'm really broke. It's 2015, and I'm do, I'm doing catering at a tech event. I'm and I'm in this cocktail dress, walking around with a flutes of champagne, and to make this even worse, like to turn it into like a proper Aaron Sorkin moment, I run into my former boss who had fired me after one day of being her assistant, because obviously I'm, I'm terrible at being an assistant. And so it was just like this general, really 
film-like story. And then we finished cleaning up by 2 a.m. They packed us into this van, took us back to Edgware Road. And then I went home, packed my suitcase, went to the smallest, worst airport in London and boarded the, the cheapest flight out of the country and went back to Budapest where this guy was waiting for me at the airport with my name and I got into this Mercedes and they took me to this five-star hotel and I was talking at a conference in Budapest and then they packed me back and took me back to London where I was again kind of waiting for a bus with my little suitcase and completely invisible. But it was a very important experience. I had to, um, I had to kind of go and press the reset button and figure out how I wanted to see if I'm smart and strong enough to to get something going from zero. It's very slow, obviously, and it's very hard to explain to people, right? So, I mean, I started my my startup late 2016, the first version, and I I am fully aware that I'm competing with 21 year old guys, right? Um, so this is not and statistically this is yeah. So what are you worried about? <laughs> so what are you worried about? That's the point. Most of those guys are horrible. So, I mean, let, let's be honest. Yeah. It's about the perception, right? So, um, Silicon Valley thinking that, or the tech community thinking that young people are just de facto geniuses is completely, completely absurd. I think all of the things you mentioned, there's this whole category of VCs and experienced operators who the only people they think about investing in, the only people that they think about partnering with are people who have had what they call crap jobs. They literally will tease that out in a conversation in like the first or second conversation to see if they want to associate with you in the future because they don't like working with people who are entitled or people who have never had any type of like challenge in in the real world. So yeah, I just want to throw that out there that, um, yeah. But those experiences I think are really important because whether you're coming from a background like yours or a background where you might be a second or third generation American, where you're surrounded by so much inherited technology and systems that were built by people who were very smart. But if you don't get outside those systems, you can tend to be crippled by them in a, in a sense. So can you talk a little bit about what were you learning when you were navigating the world on your own? What type of confidence were you gaining when you discovered I can not only do this, but I can do this from zero, like you said? I think that's a very, very good point, And it ties back really nicely into the whole trust idea. The reason why I immigrated so late was because I had a really good life in Budapest, right? I was in the golden cage in every sense of the word. And I could have stayed there forever. It was really, really comfortable and convenient. And it's hard to appreciate how social networks not in the technological sense, but like as in terms of like a Dunbar number, in, in terms of your, your social capital, the power of that. So I think my first big jump was having the leverage in the sense that I, I felt my own strength very strongly. So I trusted myself enough to leave all of that behind. Like I really, I knew two people in London. So like imagine one of the most well-connected people, you know, in San Francisco. And imagine that they moved to North Korea tomorrow. So that was kind of the experience I had. <laughs> okay, maybe not North Korea, maybe it's not a good analogy, but in terms of the Dunbar number, like you don't know anybody and it's a completely different sure, system. Sure. Uh, um, yeah, I was thinking like probably the most well-connected person in Silicon Valley would be really well-known anywhere. So I couldn't um, really uh, come up with a more I, I get, thing. <laughs> I get the point though. No, no, I, I get the point. Um, so just for reference, so when my wife and I 
moved out to uh, Silicon Valley or like the Bay Area, we moved from Maryland and we're both from really small towns in Maryland. So, I mean, we came out here, we literally knew no one. The only people that we did know were the handful of people that Steph had interviewed with when she got her job. And that was, uh, that was it. So yeah, um, we're, we're experienced with uh, knowing, starting from zero, knowing nobody. For me, it was a little bit strange. So I, I, I remember, okay, so I, I had this combination of frustration and trust in myself that propelled me to, to, to leave the country. I was trying to, so I really started looking for opportunities in like 2011. So altogether, it took me one and a half years to finally get out. So I got a scholarship in London and that's how I could move and taking relatively little support from, from anybody. And what was really strange was that once I had moved and I thought, you know, I was very proud of myself, like, oh my God, I've just done the big, you know, the big leap of faith. And from now on, this is like the new start. One year after that, I had a major personal cataclysm in my life that really kind of destroyed everything that was like remotely remaining intact in my life. So I went fully bankrupt. I lost a lot of people in my life. It was like an equivalent of a divorce um, from like a personal relationship point of view. And I found myself in January 2015 with basically like 300 pounds on my account, very few friends, family left. My relationship was gone. I was basically nonstop crying and and I wasn't really the best workforce in the odd jobs industry at the time. Um, I was worried if I will have any place to live. I didn't ha- even have enough money to move back home. It was one of those cataclysmic moments where you kind of just peek into the abyss really and and think, can I stay on the brim here? Do I have... How am I going to uh, hypnotize myself back from 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 staring into that very dangerous thing? And then I remember I remember this experience, and it was so important in how I ended up changing how I approach dialogue and language because something was. I think it's we can call it a PTSD. So for nine months, I had sure. a complete silence in my head with no buzz whatsoever, no dreaming, no fantasizing, no future, no next hour, just deep silence, which comes also with an incredible focus and openness. So I basically spent the nine months just reading science. It also made me able to peek under language in a way that I, I've never been able to. I always approach language through other people, observing dialogue. I was working with investigative journalists, analyzing dialogue, like secretly recorded tapes. And then you get like a 20 hour tape and you have to figure out who is who and who recorded this. It's, it's a really exciting thing. Um, I was working at Amnesty Universe. I was working on scripts a lot. And I never really looked at it from the source of origin, like where does it come from in my own brain? Where does, can I reverse engineer the things that I see around myself in this very pure kind of shocked midair state that my brain happens to be in? And I remember like, I didn't have thoughts. I was just like blaring Chopin into my face 10 hours a day just to have something happen. Like I wanted to get it moving again and consumed an insane amount of scientific literature at the time. But the interesting thing was that the more I read about neuroscience and, and psycholinguistics and neurolinguistics, which I had studied when I was doing my master's, but never, I was always more focused on language history. 
I was always more interested in like migration of the people and evolution and blah, blah, blah. And I, what I started noticing was that the algorithmic approach that screenwriters have so that they are able to construct dialogue from, you know, Aristotle's rules of how dramas work all the way to Robert McKee or how, I don't know, um, The Wire was, was written. Um, so you have these very specific rules. And I started thinking like, oh my God, so these guys who maybe kind of look down upon from a point of view of a neuroscientist are actually doing like this von Bertalan fee system theory thing where you can only understand how a system works when you try to replace an element or when you try to build it. So instead of reverse engineering dialogue, what screenwriters and playwrights do is that they build dialogue. So they take the algorithm, they take the rules, and they basically like just switch around these variables because mm. if they can't construct it, then nobody will believe it, right? So the viewer always know if that system works or, or it doesn't work because you hear it and you're like, you know, when you watch a movie and you're like, well, nobody would ever say that. You, that's what you have to avoid. Yes. And this really struck me as really strange. And, and even though I had, I moved to London with the resolution of becoming a famous screenwriter, I realized like, oh my God. So I have this algorithmic knowledge that seems to be corroborated by a lot of things in neuroscience and how psycholinguists or even AI engineers and NLP engineers approach language. Do I want to use this knowledge to spend my life helping fictional people to have better dialogues when fictional people don't exist, but real people do exist? And when it was late 2016, where I don't know if you noticed, but it was a very interesting time and we were just between Brexit and what you guys do um, as general elections. And I felt that, okay, so I don't really have an excuse anymore not to use this in action. I don't really have, this is so needed. And I see so many, I see language falling apart around myself. I remember this. I remember this from my childhood. I know what's coming. I know even if you stop it, it's 30 plus years of, of breakdown of corporation trust in, in communities. We have to do something about restoring language. And my first And what do you idea, mean by... Uh, restoring language? Do you just mean making it easier for people to agree on shared definitions and easier for people to collaborate through language? What are you, what's the uh, shining city on the hill? What would it look like if we were able to restore communications? I think painting that picture for everyone would really help. Like what's your dream world of if uh, your company and if you succeed with what you're doing, what does it look like for people's communication? So the shining beacon here is, um, restoring willingness, openness to engage in dialogue with each other, for which you need, for trust, you need the leverage. And the leverage here is to be confident in our own language or that we will find the shared language with this person. And then the sustainability of this dialogue. I will give you an example. I like to say that one of the most important things that happened to me in late 2016, in that extremely sensitive and, and vulnerable moment in in the history of the West was Peter. So Peter is my friend and Peter is now the co-founder of ICSI Labs. And Peter and I don't agree on anything when it comes to politics. Just to give you an example for Peter really, um, I, th I think that for, for him, the, the, the pinnacle of the feminist movement is, you know, Dame Margaret Thatcher and, and not just the second wave, but like in general. And, and, and we have like a lot of like really funny examples of how we, we definitely uh, uh, disagree on. And 
what was so interesting is that throughout these months, Peter and I were in a constant dialogue. We were constantly chatting, 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 chatting. And it felt really that there's something not normal about how this thing is unfolding. Because even though we were in constant messaging dialogue with each other and like marathons of politics and, and personal stuff, and we didn't agree on anything, at no point did Peter and I want to murder each other or delete each other or friend each other or any other metaphor or real form of quitting. And that really got me thinking. And I was like, okay, so if I know the algorithm for this and I have a lot of data can I analyze this dialogue? What makes this dialogue different? Why does it remain amicable? What do we do that makes this friendship not fall apart, neither for reasons of technology and your phone being annoying and chat ups being annoying and they're not being tone and they're not being a received etiquette of how to do this, and, and, and nor for political reasons or worldview reasons or what tribe we feel we belong to. So this really came from this one moment when I felt that what I had understood in theory suddenly has a subject on which I can try it out, basically. But even, even with that in mind, my first idea and the first incarnation of what became actual and what became my company today was geared toward public discourse. A lot of things in the media will be... And this is kind of the, 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 the hammer and the nail. So obviously media operate in the public sphere. So the focus of their analysis will be themselves. Like it's very normal for people to focus on what they know. So my first instinct was I'm familiar with public discourse more too. Um, I worked on a number of NGO projects and a lot of uh, journalistic projects and films and stuff. So I'm very familiar with engaging directly with an audience. So I was like, okay, so we will be creating some kind of a thing that will help with public discourse because this is about Reddit and this is about Twitter and this is about Facebook comments. And I was pitching this idea to a lot of people and having a lot of conversations. And you know, when you're talking about something in a very convincing way, just to get back to the show business virtue question or dichotomy in many cases, I felt some of this some of this stuff wasn't def defensible. So mm -hmm. I was I was saying it, but in the back of my mind, I was like, "Oh my god, okay." So actually, I need I need more data on that. What am I talking about? And I don't like talk about things that I don't know because that's like you don't have the leverage and you can't trust yourself. So I basically went and spent four months researching, just walking from campus to campus in in London and talking with everybody about. Am I right? Like, guys, change my mind, contradict me, prove me wrong. I'm really, I want to know what am I messing up? I have a lot of such meetings. Like, I will go, <laughs> you know, I will go to, get on the bus, go to Oxford, go to Future of Humanity Institute and ask a table full of guys <laughs> to tell me what am I going to mess up, guys? And like, if, like prioritize, like in probability, what am I most likely to mess up and least likely? And then they will tell you, it's amazing. Um, so, um, and the more I was talking to people, the more I, I, I was feeling like an idiot, like, oh, my God, like this idea for me came from personal messaging. Why did I shoot it out into the public thing? Everybody was telling me about the words of the people that I was, hear, that I, I was hearing built into this architecture that shows you this 
one by one slow process of losing everybody in your life that you can't message with and that thing forming these silos. And I started, and then you go on, on, on Reddit and then you go on Twitter and then you have, then you become tribal. So basically I, I started telling people that everybody you see, if you look outside, every person you see with a phone only has in their life left the people with, with whom they can peacefully message with. Everybody else is gone. And it's not a, a big blowout. It's not like, oh my God, I, my, my Facebook comment section got out of, of control. It's one by one. You just have that negative feeling. You don't message them anymore or you don't go there for Thanksgiving or Christmas or you don't call them. You don't invite them to your birthday party. And it's a very powerful way to shape our social capital. It's incredible. Mm. And nobody was talking about this. And and first you get the experience when you, you're messaging with your crazy uncle or your former friend or, uh, you know, th- that person becomes those people. And it's yes. from then on that you identify those people in society and you no longer have the trust. Why don't you have the trust? Because the platform on which you had this communication experience, which was probably Messenger or WhatsApp, you didn't have any leverage. You didn't have any control. You couldn't express yourself clearly. You couldn't smile at the other person. And you also didn't have any tools to understand what they are saying better or to show your openness, right? All you see is like somebody's typing and your stress hormones shoot way up. And to me, that was crazy. And I remember I I sat down, I was in Newspeak House in London and I was talking with this neuroscientist guy from Yale and I was like Brendan am I insane like this is wherever I go I keep seeing this and people say this to me but I I can't read about this anywhere I was looking up Mm. competitors I was looking up I felt so such a I felt I had such a, a a phase of imposter syndrome I thought maybe I just have to go and work for the company that does this and this is all this this motivation is primarily driven by the fact that you are just incredulous at this point that no one else is seeing what you're seeing or no one else is seeing the scope of the problem as you are or or what are what are you most uh, what are you in disbelief about? So I think okay, I have, I have two answers to that. Um, both sure. both will be Venn diagrams. I have two Venn diagrams. Okay, for that. cool. Uh, so in late. 2016 I was trying to figure out what should I do I felt a very strong motivation and I knew it was going to be about language and I knew that I was going to use AI and which I had been researching at the time and I was going to use some kind of algorithmic approach from how screenwriters and and theater makers work um so I was looking at okay what Trying to kind of, I, I later on learned about the ikigai. I didn't at the time know about it, so I was just kind of inventing the wheel on my bed, looking at the Vauxhall Tower as the sun was going down. And so I was like, okay, what is really needed? What can my brain do if I really push it? What is something where technology is coming up? And what is something that I'm not only so passionate about that I can motivate myself every day, but I imagine this scenario where this is, it's February and it's snowing and this is the 20th day when I have to wake up at 5 a.m. and I have a cold and I have a fever and I have to go, not just go into work, but I have to get a room full of people psyched about this. 
like what is it and i just did that on my, at my testing which i did we did a testing session last week and i was fully i slept three hours and it was cold and raining and i had a fever so it was perfect i really proved that i chose the right thing <laughs> i was looking at like what what is that thing and you have to be really honest to yourself right i was like i had this moment of reckoning like i thought if i don't have this thing then i would ask myself a year later that's why and then i and then i knew that this was going to be it but to get back to, to really answer your question, now this is smaller um, and maybe less existentially pompous uh, Venn diagram. It's just like, yes, it's a problem that I saw that nobody was really tackling, but it's also a problem that's important to me personally. So there are a lot of problems in our lives that we see and they are like, oh, I wish the, I don't know, garbage collection would be better solved in my council, whatever. But, you know, it has to be really, really super personal to you and something that you struggle with on a daily basis. So I thought, okay, so myself, I went through these two cataclysmic events in my recent life. I have long distance friendship, remote working. I'm Eastern European, so I'm very outspoken, very snappy in messaging. So you have all those, all those things um, that make me an ideal user of my own product. And, and I think that's very important because you have, I mean, I'm sure you love podcasts, so you understand that you want to, you basically want to yeah. create what you would like to exist, but it doesn't. Yes. And it has to be bugging you. It has to be to the point where you're driven crazy about the fact that it doesn't exist. You have to feel stupid because you're like, why isn't anybody else just building it like this? It could be so much better. And I went through the same thing where I kept looking for a company that kind of understood the same things that I thought I understood and that we do understand. And yeah, it's, it's always like, you always can't believe that there isn't anybody else doing exactly what you're doing, but I'm, it's a relief. It's also like, there's a little bit of paranoia there, but it's, it's really fun um, because how else are you going to get the energy to keep, you know, to keep doing this? And like you said, to get up when you're sick, when you've only slept three hours, I just, I, I can't imagine doing anything else. Is that, so tell me a little bit about just where the, add point because yeah, I, think, please. I, think, I think we share this uh, probably um, between us. I always say that being very ir irritable curious and hardworking are like the killer characteristics that you can have for what we do because I'm always irritated when I don't know stuff like it bugs me I don't sleep I will talk to like I will go to the most famous person in the world doing that thing and loudly embarrass myself happily to get the information it really drives me crazy and it's so much stronger than my vanity or even social customs in the sense that I will happily cross hierarchical boundaries in a yeah. very respectful way, but still to, to get answers. And then you have, you add, add to that the curiosity which propels this and then the hard work or the, 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 the work ethic that keeps you on the track of discovering the answers. And I think these three things, I, I, I like to say that the things that make you an annoying date mm -hmm. make you fantastic a fantastic founder so uh, well it's a yeah. two-edged thing but i will yeah. happily be an annoying date yeah if, if you have an interesting hypothesis or one that is uh new or could help a lot of people or help yourself you're going to almost have an addictive like personality where you have to get the next piece of information the next commentary or thoughtful criticism from somebody in the space that you that you admire like th those are those are the fuel that kind of like keep, it keeps us going is like figuring out is our model of the world is our hypothesis correct because yeah the most motivating things that happen for me is 
when I get small pieces of vindication from the market, from somebody I respect, from someone who, uh, like a customer or client that pays us money, each of these are something that like de-risks the business. They de-risk like my personal anxiety, but in a sense, it's like, it's doing this work that is therapeutic for me. I don't know about for you, um, but that's what a lot of this process feels like. I think my work method or my work life is a little bit of a combination of the brutal and the gentle. I can be very hard on myself. And I remember reading um, um, Margaret Atwood's Negotiating with the Dead. It's, it's a collection of her, her, her uh, lectures that she gave uh, on writing and writers. But she kind of delves into generally um, creativity and research and how intellectual pursuits work in general. And I remember her making this point where she describes how writers can be so different. Like you have writers who are really successful, social uh, schmoozers. Um, you have writers who live, I don't know, in a remote farm and never spoke, never speak to anybody. And you have, uh, you know, a variety of different things going on. But one of the things that, that ties all writers or creative people together is that at the end of the day, whether we do go out or don't go out, whether we have large families or live alone, we, we do like to be alone a lot. We need time and silence. And to me, that's, I mean, I grew up in this super loud show business family in Eastern Europe with people coming and going all the time. It was very crowded, very loud, very musical. And all I wanted was silence. Like I knew I need time to think, leave me alone. And you risk so you risk sounding unfriendly or letting people down. So I ended up just kind of staying up at night because then, I, you know, it was being invisible under the covers reading. And, and, and I think the reason is because how I approach things or how I discover things is what I like to call the boring head. So I kind of, one thing starts interesting me. And then for years, mm. it's like, there's no way to stop. Like I'm going to go until lower and lower layers are found and discovered and, and basically deconstruct the whole thing until nothing remains, right? It's like ideas are so analogous to how biological systems work. Like you can take a human being and kind of zoom in until there is nothing, just the, the air between the atoms, right? Or, or sub, to, to like subatomic level. And I do a very similar deconstruction with, with ideas and fully knowing that Ideas have to be shared and thought about. So you do have to be able to climb back to a scale where systems are still sustainable and kind of analyze them there. But you have to know that scale is, in some cases, arbitrary. Take a business plan. The business plan works on a certain scale of causality, say. Mm -hmm. But you can kind of zoom in and deconstruct the whole thing until it means nothing. So, so I think having... Having control over that elevator that goes between these layers, I think it's a very important tool for, for understanding how things really work. Um, and I definitely I bring that from linguistics. Agree. So I, I use a linguistic analogy on everything because of the hammer and nail thing again. <laughs> I love that. And uh, you bring up a really important point, which is as a CEO or a founder of your company, you're going to be the one who has the most context and the most information. And this is a really difficult place to be in because it can be very tempting for us to keep looking for outside approval or you know different accolades and things like that but at the end of the day the only person that knows is this working in the right way or is this headed in the right direction 
is it's often going to be the CEO or the co-founders. Could you talk a little bit about how you view the role of a CEO and a founder and what that means to you? Absolutely. I approach the the role of the CEO from a point of view of responsibility. So I'm the the, the core person responsible for this idea and the success of my company, its communication, its finances, ultimately also for everything related to business development or how the technology is built. I am at this point the core point of trust for um, our users um, during research and the, the early users who are testing the product with us. I, I really believe in kind of soft governance in the sense that I feel that I have to define frameworks and general direction and be the person, uh, you know, encouraging people and being very vocal about our vision. Um, but I'm also responsible for showing a good example through my hard work and always being a person to talk to. So I feel that, okay, so if I define, I'm saying this is a super early stage founder, maybe like in two years, I will have a very, uh, I don't even know, Spartan take on how to run startups. At this point, I'm very kind of between Spartan and the hippie. Um, I think di- different stages require different mentalities for sure. So I, I think that uh, being gentle in the early stages is uh, is very, very important because you have time when there aren't any direct attackers and like there's there's time for the hippie CEO and founder. Absolutely. So I try to define the frameworks very firmly, but everything else and how people actually you know go about doing their jobs, I'm trying to be very flexible. Most of the times because I don't know, like they are specialists, right? I don't Yes, I'm a good generalist and I do understand, you know, uh, most things needed to, to, to understand about what we're doing. But like, I couldn't do what my designer is doing. So I'm not going to be um, just speaking uh, across her shoulders and, and, and micromanage. Obviously, I hired her because I believe that she's really good at this. So it would be very counterproductive if I actually started um, being the obstacle um, that stops her from achieving greatness um, with our product. As a former Girl Scout slash athlete, I can really talk about how important it is to learn that even if you're hard on yourself, and this is why I said that I'm, I'm trying to be a combination of brutal and gentle, which I think is, uh, is, is really summing up how, how startups work. You can't do that to other people. Nobody is responsible for how much pressure you take on yourself. Nobody's responsible for the sacrifices you're willing to seek out and make. And I think it's a, it, it can be a very difficult thing for teams when one person in the management who is overly, you know, um, tough on themselves starts acting the same way on others. I think my responsibility is to understand under what positive pressure does this person work best? What is their type? What is their style? And then try to provide that. I understand that eventually it will be more uniform. We will have a large large company with separate teams, with their separate management. Uh, and there will be some uniform elements to that. And there will be cultural fit and certain types will be preferred in that. And I, this is very needed probably for efficiency and reducing the noise. But when we are basically two co-founders and two freelancers, um, because we have a freelance designer, freelance researcher, at this point, 
working around people's individual best practice is I think my best practice. It's such good advice. Yeah. It's, it's such an easy trap to fall into of thinking that how each of us responds to judgment or our own personal criticism is going to map to other people. And intuitively, I know that this doesn't make sense, that it's a bad idea for me to use the same type of uh, judgment I use on my own work for others, but I still fall into this trap. And I think it's, uh, it's easy for us to fall into. So what type of things are you working on as a company that might help communication in the future? Can you give us some examples of whether they're beta tests or whether they are you know, early trials that, that you all are doing that show some promise that you can share? Sure. So Actual is currently in, currently being basically ruled out in the form of the first invitations into the product. The, this beta is an AI-mediated messenger that people can use with their closest relationships. So we provide up to five free invitations that you can send out. It's a gift. It's a, it's a promise. It's a, it's an expression of care and how important this person is to you so much that they are basically one of the five most important people because you want to have categorically better daily conversations with them uh, than you have with probably anybody else. So we provide four invitations. One says, I would like to reconnect with you. One says, we are always so busy. Uh, one says, let's have a friendly debate. And one says, I'm sorry about what happened. And they are beautifully designed. We went for like a Jane Austen, very literary, very kind of verbal direction to emphasize language and kind of inspire people uh, to whom writing and verbal expression is very, very important. And you can also create your own invitation. So if you know none of these um, fall into how you would like to kick off this conversation or these conversations, you can just send anything you like. And so what we've been trying to build in the past one and a half years is a combination of unique design aimed at reducing all the elements from currently available messenger apps that drive conversations to the negative or, or, or that help you know, relationships fall apart and add elements that are missing. This was a very interesting kind of balancing act uh, that we experimented with so much. So you enter uh, the product and you are given a lot of visual tools that help you understand how specific conversations are going. We play with metrics, we play with colors. You get, I like to say that, you know, when you're a child and you grow up, you go downstairs and you see your family sitting around the table having breakfast. Basically in two seconds, just by looking around the, the, the dinner table or the, the kitchen table, you know exactly how the five people that determine if you're a happy person or not, if you're, you know, long-term productive, romantically successful and healthy, you know exactly how these relationships are going. You can see that mom didn't sleep well, dad is grumpy about something that's in the newspaper, and that your little brother is really in a highly energetic mode, and this is going to be a very exhausting day uh, for everybody. Um, and, you know, we were talking with people and researching, and we felt that, oh my God, people are missing this so much. In their quest to make us stay on the platform for longer and longer periods of time, tech companies remove this element of immediate claims into how my relationships are going, who do I have to go and talk to to keep my kind of kitchen cabinet, my, my small circle intact? And the other thing that people were telling us 
and this was so beautiful. Like so many things that happened in our research process basically restored my faith in humanity. All people are going to be talking about, I have goosebumps just like remembering these sessions, will be, I miss knowing how my relationships are going immediately. I miss the little signs of expressions of care and love because everybody's on WhatsApp, everybody's on Twitter, everybody's on Instagram. How do I show to my closest people closest to me that they are more important than everybody else. How do, how do I make this obvious? How, what is the, the, the technological equivalent of inviting somebody into your living room or giving them a key to your home? And, and these things kind of added up to this whole invitation process and our approach to the visual metrics. I want people to open actual and know exactly which person to talk first to, who is doing, how was our last, series of conversations so so we have that and we also so, so that's also reflected in in profiles so people can track their own progress and we try to we will monetize the product so people can basically like in a computer game uh, or mobile game you can actually unlock free stuff with really making your conversations go wonderfully so that's one element the, the second element, um, which has been, again, subject to very long testing uh, periods, is the tools. We noticed, and, you know, I've, I've been advised by people at Turing Institute, people at Future Humanity Institute, some extremely wonderful people in how, you know, researching how to design ethical AI, an AI that actually helps people. And we thought that if I only put an, an, a conversation facilitator, mediator AI into the product, that you have to wait for popping up, then what will people do? Will people provoke it? Will that actually counterintuitively lead to worse conversations? I felt that that's reducing people's leverage. I have to give people leverage so they always can have more control over their conversations than just what a, a, an AI component could give. So we went and basically separated four tools in the conversations. One is showing appreciation, one is showing distress, and one is controlling clarification or controlling the pace of the conversation. These are the four big things missing from daily text conversation currently. Yeah, that's that's so that's so smart because I feel like the pace of conversation, if you're texting with somebody who prefers a different pace, uh, there's just no way to know if they're ready to talk right then or if they would love to text in like four hours. So I think that's a, that's a, that's a very, very deep point that you've just made. One of the things that Messenger, WhatsApp and DM communication messes up, and this very interestingly on a wider scale leads into how messaging relates to political polarization or worldview polarization. What Messenger I would call Messenger, like I would use Messenger as like a general term for um, web-based text messaging apps. Takes away as a possibility is for people with different communication preferences to be able to talk with each other. So if you're a more agreeable person or you're a more disagreeable person, so you will be avoiding maybe conflicts more or you know, you will want to have more constructive disagreements so you can like find the truth together. Or if you're a slower typer or a faster typer, there's beyond email, there's no really, there's nothing really available to help you to 
keep in touch peacefully over long periods of time. So what this means is that you will probably have people left in your life who randomly happen to have similar communication preferences to you. But if you look at it from a wider, in a wider context, this means that we know how, you know, personal communication preferences and, and, and personality styles can also predict political affiliation. We know that they very strongly correlate with generations, right? So probably a 70-year-old will type more slowly and will be annoying on Messenger without them even doing anything wrong just by being themselves. We know that people who would be super happy couples, IRL, will fall out because they have different messaging preferences, right? There's a lot of hurt um, that can arise from this. So what this means is, you know, it makes people withdraw into these random categories. And to me, the silos that come out of the inability to, to, to feel in control over sustaining the, 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 the conversations and thus the relationships we want in our lives will make people much more risk averse. And, and so I do see that by facilitating for people to just be themselves without the risk of currently you always have to choose whether you are yourself or you will lose other people. And I was thinking, can we move the needle between these two extremes? Because it didn't always used to be like this and it doesn't have to be like this. So we are very non-normative in actual, both in how we train the AI and how we constructed the tools for appreciation, signaling, discomfort, or, um, you know, how you regulate the pace or how you ask for clarification. We constructed the whole thing so you can basically choose your own battles. We will help you prevent all the different misunderstanding-based, different styles-based, stressful moments, uh, anything that may make your messaging experience bad, those will be significantly lower. But if you want to have a constructive disagreement, if you want to own up to having a different opinion or wanting to have something else for dinner, we will make that possible in a way that actually strengthens the relationship, which I think is what constructive conflicts are for right? Those are supposed to be battles won for both. And they're supposed to build into your feeling ownership over this relationship because it's a relationship where so many conflicts have been solved and it makes makes it stronger. So I really want to bring the flexibility back in how we communicate um, online, which is obviously more and more. I love that. And would you recommend that people do a small audit before they join. So something along the lines of maybe list out the people in your life where a lack of good communication or maybe the reason why they're not in your life anymore is because you just had this miscommunication or something. So do you recommend that people make a list before they log onto the app? So what I've noticed, we get a lot of signups on the website, even though we haven't, I mean, we're just launching and we're not advertising at all. So the word of mouth is really good. And I opened this thing on the website so people can enter their stories um, and who they want to use actual for or what is their story. And so I receive countless stories every day about people's, you know, stories about communication and how they see where they see their life uh, would be different had they had a better platform to have, uh, you know, to conduct their communication on. So we kind of know that when people first hear about the app, they know who they want to use it with. It's usually 
family, but we also get, for example, co-founders, so startup co-founders um, or artistic collaborators. So I, I like to say that it's personal relationships and personal style relationships. So if your work is like a family, like when at a startup or you know, a small orchestra or chamber orchestra who tours the world together and have very close personal relationships with each other, actual will be perfect. So we do know that. But we also see that when people actually see the invitations, so they see the four invitation cards, they sometimes either change their ideas or want to send out two invites. They get another idea like, oh, I didn't know that existed. Yeah, yeah. So people come and, you know, they will say, oh, I want to use it with my, my wife or with my teenage son. I'm um, best friends who live in another country. But now that I see that there's also the reconnection, actually there is that guy, you know, that I am. Um, I just, you know, I really miss from my life. And this is what the card says, that you are very important to me. I miss our, I, I want to have better, better conversations with you than with anybody else. Your presence in my life is welcome and I'm open to your thoughts. I would love to, for you to be a part of my life in the form of sharing ideas and our feelings with each other throughout the day beyond gifts and selfies and, um, you know, or falling out over some nonsense that could have been so easily avoided. So we do get these beautiful stories every day and it's just, you know, it's not hard to be hardworking when you know that what you're doing is so deeply needed and it makes me kind of impatient as well. Like I wanted to be an author. <laughs> we have a little like, my CTO is a bit more like, oh, okay, okay, we will, we will when, when, when we're there. <laughs> Nice. Um, what are some examples from your own life or is there a story about when you noticed a miscommunication and you went back, addressed it and used some of the learnings and the research that you discovered and you put that in practice in your own life? I think working on actual completely changed how I communicate um, with people in, in messaging and particularly, I mean, I don't know if it's a, it's a, it's, Maybe it's embarrassing to own up to this, but I think I used to be much more passive aggressive in messaging. So I would, and I think this is something a lot of people do. I would say something and when the other person reacted accur accurately to that, I would pretend that that was a misunderstanding and I was just joking or I didn't mean it. So you basically, because it's such a risky environment to be text messaging with each other, you can very easily push the, the responsibility of any stress on the other person. And I was definitely, not all the time, but definitely I never do this again. So when you see the actual harm that this is doing, you fully stop. And now I'm like, listen, this is what I think um, based on my current priors. I may be wrong. This is how what you're doing makes me feel or this is how I just feel. And this is not about you. Um, I just have a bad day today. Sorry. It, it, it made me more truthful or it made me understand that my, I think everybody's truthful. I think people, if you watch, you know, things like Box of Lies and these TV shows where they try to make people lie, people can't really lie. We, right. we lie in very specific situations. People are terrible at lying. I mean, we don't like to do Over the long term, over the long term, people can't keep it up. Yeah, it's too exhausting. Yeah. yeah and also we give ourselves away and it's just ridiculous um, in a very charm, charming way so I think people are truthful but we are sometimes not brave enough or not encouraged enough to be truthful because we are so worried about the consequences so one of the things that I'm really dedicated to and particularly because 
I don't know anything, right? So I don't, I can't tell people how to communicate. What I can guarantee is that we will, we can, we can create a system that is flexible enough to follow how they prefer to communicate until they improve that and reach the goals in their lives that they want, right? So if you're, you know, if you're a second language speaker and your problem is that nobody really understands what you're saying and you're constantly stressed and eventually end up just not messaging anybody and then learning the language slower, then this platform will be super ideal for you. If your problem is that you're, you would love to message your partner a lot during the day, but they are more people who, who want to focus on work and they get easily distracted and you're constantly hurt and feel feeling let down, then we can help with that. Obviously, this is not a sign of, you know, neglect. It's just different personal preferences. If you're, you know, if you're somebody who, to whom it's really difficult to express that you don't like something, that something that the other person said hurt you, this is very true about work as well, right? Like to tell somebody that how they work or how they communicate at work is making you less productive because it's stressful to you is one of the most difficult conversations to have. Because you feel that, you know, like you don't go up to somebody and say, your height is inconvenient for me because it's not something that the other person can say. And you imagine that somebody said this to you, you would feel horrible, right? Mm. We don't want to hurt each other. And communication often is, is very you know, inherent in how people are and, and, and can only be improved bearing in mind our specific styles. It can't be improved in a uniform manner. So we're trying to, to facilitate for people to be more, those people to whom this is a problem, to own up to your preferences. Like, okay, is there something you misunderstood here? Go ahead. Like, Chad is listening. Everything's fine. Like, don't retreat into this thing. One of the interesting things when people start self-censoring, which happens a lot in messaging, we are in, you would think that the world is becoming more and more outspoken and crazy, like overturned window falling. No, people have no idea what is okay to be said. People, it's very, very reminiscent of my childhood in many ways. So um, we're just trying to, you know, give that encouragement because leverage leads to trust. If I'm not truthful to you, it's m- myself, it's me that will end up trusting you less. Mm. A very interesting paradox. The, the basic a priori prerequisite for us being able to communicate way beyond, below the language layer, way below the information theory layer, way below everything, is that we think we have a, a shared reality, right? So we perceive each other to be existing in the same moment and same time. Uh, same, in some ways, we are able to communicate with each other. There's a channel between us. And, and, and that's why I decided to, you know, I'm sitting at home alone right now in London, and I wouldn't be talking to just to my books right now. I obviously perceive you to be here <laughs> with me. So if I tweaked that reality by either not responding to you truthfully or by bringing up an actual lie, I would move this situation one step closer to fiction. So from then on, any reaction you would be giving to me would be not truthful either. You wouldn't know. You would think in your matrix, you would still be 
within reality, but I would know that's not true anymore. So I wouldn't be able to trust what you say. And this is very interesting in how when you map out breakdown of trust in seemingly random spaces in the in public discourse or pers personal conversation, if you encourage people to self-censor in their most private moments, it's them, the person self-censoring, who will end up with a diminished trust in the other person. Right. The individual begins to project that everybody else out is doing the same thing, is horrible. Yeah. Absolutely. Horrible, and, and they, horrible they, might they be too strong, but be, it's, it's yeah, pretty scary. From then on, the other whatever the other person says has not no bearing on reality whatsoever, and it becomes a facade. It becomes a, a pseudo conversation. And I think we, you can't spend too many years forcing people to have pseudo conversations without that having deeply and long-lastingly disastrous effects on the social structure or the social the the net that kind of underpins how we cooperate with each other. And the the economy can't grow. That's, that's, I think, something really important to bring up is that we can't expect to get back to an economy that grows faster than 2% or get to the, uh, you know, the glory days of like 5 or 7% growth if people can't communicate, if people are self-censoring, if people can't trust. Like uh, high economic growth is tied directly with, it's just a measure of how much does a populace trust each other, right? I think that's a really great point. And if you look at the most productive periods in human history, they always had very firm and very widely shared um, shared contexts, uh, symbolic systems, right? Yeah, shared experiences, post-World War II or any, anything like that. Absolutely. So the keywords, the kind of the, the cries of battle were shared by very large chunks of the population. Religion used to be a really good vehicle of this, right? It, it's like a, religion basically is a shortcut to tie a lot of things, a lot of layers together in society. Obviously, I'm, I'm a secularist. I don't think that we should return to that. But the, the necessity of widespread shared symbolic systems that are mm -hmm. virtuous and, 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 and in, encouraging and enabling productivity, you can't circumvent that. Like That's the only way we are going to go forward. Um, I chose a very, very tiny little bit of a of an angle on that which for me is the the most intimate exchanges of language because i think that that's one of the sources of that enables everything else to exist the same way as probably someone working in health tech will tell you that well you need to keep people alive so they eventually can go and be productive i think you need to keep people's good personal neighborly and 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 public relationships alive for there to be anything and and i do i do know that this is something that i uh, creates concentric circles and i'm really excited to see this in action um, i'm really um, it's really interesting when you're a founder you're both the engine of getting things done but you're also kind of in the front in the front row maybe maybe driving a car would actually be a good good metaphor because you're both driving it but at the same time you're kind of sightseeing where is the where Definitely. is the road going um so i kind of feel like that yeah i'm driving a super fast and really exciting vehicle probably a tesla <laughs> i love it so anna thanks for being generous with your time if 
there was one thing that you would leave our listeners with, whether it's a piece of advice about communicating more or maybe a final call to action to fix some of the miscommunications in their past, what would you leave them with? I would say two things here, and they are very closely related. My philosophy in how I construct actual and behind my linguistic heuristics uh, on which the product is built and just generally our design philosophy is that language is that wonderful free technology that we have where an incredibly small thing that takes no time and energy can create a massive positive change. Tell somebody you love them. Tell somebody you're sorry. Tell somebody just that they are interested, that, that, that you know, they are important to you or, or an interesting person. One word uttered to another human being can change their lives. You don't know what's happening in that person's life today. Call up a random person that comes into your mind and just tell them like, you know, I never really talk about this, but I really admire you. Or you're, you know, five years ago when you recommended that book, that was very important. And that's why I went to that meetup and met my wife. Tell people, we presume the other people know that they are important to us or that they can just kind of self-generate encouragement. They can't. We are in one system. We humans share a system and we have to be positive and respectful toward each other because that's, that is the fuel that will, I think, uh, keep us going. And I forgot the other thing. So um, that, that was it. That's the first thing was good <laughs> enough that we don't need a second thing. So that, that was awesome. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. the most typical thing that I would do. I will say, I have two things to say (laughs) and I will get so caught up in the first one. I will have no idea. And then people will be like, no, no, that's fine. That was enough. Thank you. (laughs) No, no, no. Using language to create options is uh, never, it's it's always a good idea. So I love it. (laughs) Anna, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.